What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. On August 4, 2002, 10-year-olds Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman go out to buy candy in the sleepy town of Soham in the east of England. Then they disappear. For two weeks, police and locals scour the area. It's every parent's worst nightmare. There was a sense of real fear and dread in the village. People were starting to get more and more desperate as to what might have happened to these two little girls. A photograph of the girls wearing matching red football jerseys circulates in British media and around the world. The country is united in the hope that the girls will turn up safe. But a creeping fear suggests that they may not. Ian Huntley, a local school caretaker, gives an emotional interview to the press, appealing for the safe return of Holly and Jessica. Somebody would have seen or heard something if somebody had tried to get those girls into a car, if it had just been somebody passing through. But in truth, Huntley knows the girls are long gone. Huntley was a bomb waiting to explode. All it needed was an opportunity. And on that sunny August afternoon in 2002, he found an opportunity. This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Ian Huntley. Huntley was born in Grimsby, Lincolnshire, in January 1974. He was one of two boys, raised in a working-class family. As a child, Huntley was shy and close to his mother. School was a turbulent time for Huntley. He became a frequent target for bullies, says criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley. So I think this created a a bit of a sense of shame in Ian Huntley, something that is often at the root of a lot of men like him in terms of what they go on to do. So he started off as as somebody who was always the kid that was a bit odd, the the odd one out, the, the one who's a bit of a loner. Despite having few friends, Huntley did form several relationships with girls. Many of them were at least one year younger than him. But none of these relationships lasted longer than a few weeks. In December 1994, at age 20, Huntley met 18-year-old Claire Evans, and the two had a whirlwind romance. Within weeks, they were married. But the romance didn't last. Huntley was volatile, says author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel. His wife, Claire, quickly found that he had a terrible temper. She later claimed that uh, she feared for her life and that he would often put his hands round her neck. 
inherently as somebody who is not capable of having a, a normal relationship with a woman. So he, he moves very quickly because he wants to maintain a sense of control within his relationships. So he will breeze into women's lives this knight in shining armour full of, of charm and compliments and, and will kind of try and wind them in. Just as soon as their marriage began, it quickly ended. Claire started a relationship with Huntley's younger brother, Wayne. Even though their marriage was all but over, Huntley refused to grant her a divorce until 1999. He wanted to prevent Claire and Wayne's relationship from becoming official. He'd always felt incredibly threatened by his younger brother. He took the attention away from him when he, he came into that family. And because of Ian Huntley's narcissistic tendencies, he's always going to feel he's being outdone by, by his brother. After the marriage dissolved, Huntley drifted from one apartment to the next and changed jobs often. He had a string of relationships, one of which was with a 15-year-old girl, with whom he fathered a daughter in 1998. I think it would be fair to say that Huntley demonstrated throughout his adolescence and early manhood that he had an unhealthy appetite in younger and younger women. Well, during his 20s, Ian Huntley preyed on a lot of young girls, underage girls, and, and the police who investigated the case thought that there were possibly up to 60 young girls that he'd had some kind of interaction with on, on that level. And he would kind of worm his way into to these girls' lives. And they're younger, they're, they're more impressionable, they're easier to, to lure in. In January 1998, Huntley appeared in Grimsby Crown Court, charged with burglary of a neighbor's house. He made another court appearance in May, this time charged with the rape of an 18-year-old woman. Both cases were eventually dropped due to lack of evidence, but Huntley's reputation became tainted. A year later, Huntley met 22-year-old Maxine Carr. After dating for one month, they decided to move in together. Maxine Carr was a very easy target, in a way, for Ian Huntley. Because um, at this point in his life, um, he's managed to hone those skills of hooking women in, being quite superficially charming and manipulative, and saying the things that they wanted to hear. So he's got quite a well-rehearsed script at this point in time, and he pulls that out when he meets Maxine Carr. She was naive, impressionable, and he was a, an interesting figure to her, I think. She found him perhaps, I would hesitate to call him charismatic, but at least interesting, and did not discover the violent side to his nature that his wife had. In February 2000, after a year together, the couple moved from Grimsby into a home 30 miles away in Scunthorpe. Their new neighbour, Marissa Gibb, befriended the couple. Maxine was any 25, 26-year-old girl, bubbly, giggling, talking about wanting to have children. She wanted to work in a nursery and get a job and everything. She was fantastic. But it wasn't long before Huntley's troubled past began to catch up with him. 
I finished work at eight o'clock at night, come home, and the next minute there was a, a police van outside in, in the back. And I looked out the window and thought, oh, Christ, I hope everything's okay. So then they left. Next day, I saw Maxine. I says, are you all right? Is the family okay? You don't feel like that. I says, no, um, Ian's been accused of raping Grinsby. He says, but the dates they've got, we were living next door here. He says, well, why didn't you tell the police to come and see me? I've verified that you moved next door. But then she said he was always getting allegations when they lived in Grinsby that he was raping this girl and done this to this other girl. That's why they moved to Scunthorpe to get a new life. The couple rarely left the house. Marissa recalls Huntley's controlling behaviour. I went round to see Maxine for a cup of coffee. Um, Ian was at work. And um, basically I had a cup of coffee, put it on the table, and next minute it was taken off the table, bleached, cleaned and put in the cupboard. I thought it was a bit OCD, but I thought it was just Maxine. And then she told me, no, Ian doesn't like to know that anybody's been in the house. So she was a bit scared of what was happening. I was not allowed to tell him that I'd been in the house. Marissa said there were signs that things were escalating. Huntley's obsessive nature would occasionally lead to violent outbursts. My sitting room goes, you could see straight into their kitchen. And he was shouting at her, calling all the names of the son. You do your toe, you do what I tell you to do. You could see her crouching in the corner where he was hitting her. You listen to me, you do what I say, you don't listen to nobody else. I'm your boss, I'm in charge of you, nobody else. Despite their tumultuous relationship, Huntley and Carr decided to move together once more. They headed south to lead a new life in the small town of Soham in Cambridgeshire. 24-year-old Carr found a job as a teaching assistant at St. Andrew's Primary School. 27-year-old Huntley was working as a caretaker at nearby Soham Village College. The caretaker's job came with a cottage for the couple to live in, number five, College Close. Marissa stayed in touch with Maxine and remained wary of Huntley. I got a phone call of Maxine saying, we've moved in, the house is lovely, the countryside's lovely. I said, I hope you're okay, but if you ever need me, just ring me and I'll, I'll get my brother and we'll come and get you. On August 4, 2002, 10-year-olds Jessica Chapman and Holly Wells were enjoying a barbecue at Holly's family home in the Red House Gardens neighborhood of Soham. The two girls were also Maxine Carr's students. Later that day, the two girls decided to take a walk to buy some candy. They didn't tell their parents where they were going. It was a decision that would cost them their lives. At 8.30 that evening, Holly's parents went upstairs in the family home to check on the girls. But they were nowhere to be found. This immediately raised alarm bells. As dawn broke the following day, police launched an extensive manhunt in the area with the help of hundreds of local volunteers. Then the media dove in. Within hours of their disappearance, police from three forces and hundreds of townsfolk have joined the hunt for Holly and Jessica. Local news anchor Jeremy Thompson. It is a small village in the middle of the Cambridgeshire countryside where it's one of those places where everybody knows everybody. So almost everybody in town would know 
the two families, they probably know the little girls, and therefore it was a community concern that these girls were missing and they didn't know where they were. Later that same day, police issued a public appeal. They were becoming increasingly concerned for the girls. Their disappearance is incredibly out of character. They haven't been missing before. Very well balanced, very bright young girls. As far as we can tell, they've taken no change of clothing and no money. So as we say, it's quite out of character. The police had a very real belief that the girls could have just gone missing, that they could have wandered off and got themselves lost in the countryside. It was, after all, just a a few hundred yards where they were last seen from open meadowlands and then the fens of Cambridgeshire and East Anglia. So it would have been perhaps quite easy for them to wander off, get lost, perhaps get into trouble, fall in a fen. Police tried to track Jessica's mobile phone signal, but they couldn't pinpoint a location. There was still hope that they could be found alive, and a worst-case scenario was that perhaps they'd been taken hostage by somebody or just abducted by someone uh, with not good intent. So the police still, and I think the families and the people of Soham, still had a real hope that they'd see the girls alive again in those first few days. The next day, August 5th, Holly and Jessica's parents appeared at an emotional press conference, pleading for their safe return. I love them so much. I just want them so Everyone, anyone who's got children must know what we're going through. <laughs> the disappearance of Holly and Jessica created a storm of interest, a media circus. They were so appealing, so beautiful, so charming, so smiley. The world and his wife wanted to know what on earth had happened to them. The police based their headquarters at Holly and Jessica's school. Around 500 locals and officers from neighboring Suffolk and Essex joined Cambridgeshire police in the round-the-clock search for the girls. It quickly became one of the biggest investigations the country had ever seen. Not surprisingly, an absolutely extraordinary manhunt results. Police are drafted in, areas are searched, news crews arrive, reporters arrive. Everyone who's ever seen them is interviewed at great length. With no real clues as to where the children are and what state they're in, searching these vast areas of Fenlands is difficult. So these friends of Holly's parents have chosen an area close to the A10 Cambridge Road, where the two girls were reportedly last seen yesterday morning. It's the helplessness, but as long as there's something to look for, we just never give up hope. Well, um, it's been uh, probably the worst night so so far last night we've had uh, an experienced friends and family searching in ditches but the police had no luck the search for holly and jessica continued for over a week it seemed as though they just vanished off the face of the earth On August 15th, 11 days after the girls went missing, the UK media company Sky News decided to retrace their steps, 
which meant interviewing the last person to see them, school caretaker Ian Huntley, also the boyfriend of Holly and Jessica's former classroom assistant, Maxine Carr. Carr's position at St. Andrews, the girls' school, had been temporary. When she later applied for the permanent position, she was denied. It's 6.15 p.m. The timeline on that Sunday night, the 4th of August, puts the girls here, right in the forecourt of the Village College, the local education centre. We know they'd been to the sports centre just across the road a few minutes before to buy some sweets and were carrying on walking through what would have been very familiar territory. Their primary school, St Andrews, is just across the back of the Village College here. How do we know they were here at 6.15? Well, we have an eyewitness... Ian Huntley here is a familiar figure. Evening, Ian. You're the school caretaker. The girls, Jessica and Holly, would know you, and they saw you on the front doorstep. What, what went on? According to Huntley, the girls had recognised Huntley and asked about Carr. I don't know the girls. Um, I was still on the front doorstep grooming my dog down. She'd run away and come back a bit of a mess. Um, they just came across and asked how Miss Carr was. She used to teach them at St Andrews. Um, I just said she weren't very good as she hadn't got the job. And they just says, please tell her that we're very sorry. And uh, off the walk in the direction of the, um, the library over there. And you may, as it turned out, have been the last person to actually chat to them before they vanished. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Huntley looked like an unassuming, ordinary little bloke with a soft voice who wouldn't hurt a fly. He was a slight withdrawn sort of character, but at the time he seemed reasonably credible. It seemed like a credible story. That's where the girls would have walked. So when I talked to him, I had an open mind. I certainly, at the time, wasn't thinking, this is the guy that's done them harm. Maxine Carr also made an appearance on camera. We interviewed her in the middle of the village and got her to tell us about her relationship with the girls. They're ever so funny, they're brilliant, they're kind to everybody. Um, they wouldn't say a bad word about anybody. And they love the families and everything, which is why nobody believes that they would ever run away. Um, they was very close to all their family. Carr then pulls out a handmade card from Holly. The cover is decorated in orange and pink marker. There's a large smiley face in the center. She opens the card for the camera. Inside it reads, To Miss Carr, thank you very much. Hope to see you soon. Love, Holly. This is something I'll probably keep for the rest of my life, I think. It's what Holly gave me on the last day of term. She was very upset, and that's the kind of girl she was. She was just lovely. Really lovely. Though Carr looked visibly upset about the girl's disappearance, something didn't seem right. It wasn't until after the interview that it dawned on Jeremy Thompson and his producer what it was. When I was talking to her live, didn't really occur to me. But a couple of minutes afterwards, we said thanks very much, and she walked off. And uh, my producer said, Let's just play that tape again. I'm sure she was talking about the girls in the past tense. They was very close to all their family, and that's the kind of girl she was. We thought, that's strange. And that certainly got our alarm bells ringing. Huntley's coincidental connection in the case and Maxine's TV interview raised suspicions among investigators. On Friday, August 16th, 
12 days after the disappearance of Holly and Jessica, police brought the pair in for questioning. Meanwhile, forensic experts began to search their home, as well as Soham Village College, where Huntley worked. It's a commonplace now, and indeed it was a commonplace even in 2002, for the police to take an intense interest in bystanders and onlookers at crime scenes. It's true in arson, uh, it's true in murder, and indeed it is fairly familiar, and indeed even was then, that always look at who volunteers to search for a body, whether it's the body of a child or an adult. Often, the perpetrator is among the searchers, not without exception, but often, because they want to admire their own handiwork. Could it be that the person responsible for Holly and Jessica's disappearance had been under the noses of detectives from day one? On August 16, 2002, 12 days after the disappearance of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, local caretaker Ian Huntley and his girlfriend, Maxine Carr, had been taken in for questioning by the police. Interviews given by the pair on the local news had roused the suspicions of detectives. Local news anchor Jeremy Thompson recalls, We were starting to think, wow, these two people really could be involved in something to do with these girls. They're close enough to it. They've clearly aroused police suspicion at this stage. While the pair was being questioned, Carr provided an alibi for Huntley. She claimed that she was with him in their home on the night of the girl's disappearance. After seven hours, the pair was released. It wasn't until about 10 or 11 at night that we heard that police released them, which we found interesting. And I got a phone number from Maxine Carr. I thought, well, worth a gamble, I'll just ring and see if I get through to them. And extraordinarily enough, I did. I got straight through to Maxine Carr. And I said, I gather you've been interviewed by the police. What happened? How are you? She said, well, we're fine. Um, I can't tell you anything about it, but it's all all right. Huntley then grabbed the phone off her and I guess wanted to end the conversation quickly. So he said, well, thanks for ringing. Uh, yeah, we're fine. Nothing, nothing to report. Um, the police have let us go. Nothing going on. Thanks a lot. Thanks for ringing. Bye. After questioning, investigators remained suspicious. Further searches were carried out at their home and at Huntley's place of work, Soham Village College. It was quite clear as we checked back that something had happened on the Friday night during the interviews with Huntley and Carr. It had triggered further searches, and because they suddenly saw Huntley as perhaps the key figure here, they went back over his territory, his home, and his workplace. And it was then that they began to find evidence that he had abducted the girls. On August 17th, investigators got their biggest breakthrough in the case yet. In trash bins at the school where Huntley worked, they found the burnt remains of two football shirts, tracksuit bottoms, shoes, and some underwear. Forensic expert Peter Lamb identified the clothes as belonging to Holly and Jessica. One of the crucial items in this particular case was the tops that the little girls were last seen in. 
these were unusual and this helped us tremendously to build up a picture of the types of fibres that it would be easy for us to find. Peter Lamb had the girls' clothes, but now he had to find a link to Ian Huntley. During the examination of the items from the bin, um, I found five human head hairs. These head hairs were compared with Holly's hair and Jessica's hair. They didn't match either of those two, but they did match Ian Huntley's hair. This vital evidence led to the arrest of both Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr on the very same day on suspicion of abduction and murder. When Carr had previously been questioned by police, she'd provided Huntley with an alibi, but she had lied. In fact, on the night Holly and Jessica were murdered, she was in Grimsby, 100 miles from Selham. In the last few hours, a 28-year-old man and a 25-year-old woman have been arrested. The 28-year-old man has been arrested for the murder and abduction of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. The 25-year-old woman has been arrested for the murder of both girls. They have been taken to separate police stations in Cambridgeshire, where they will be interviewed. Huntley and Carr's former neighbour, Marissa Gibb, was completely shocked. When they got him as a suspect, I didn't think he would be that type because he's always wanted children. And when my godchildren came round, or my niece or my nephew, he used to play with them in the back ten foot, everything, and I didn't seem him to be the type to do them to the two young girls. It made me upset, really, because that could have been my godchildren, that could have been my niece or my nephew. He, he could have done it then, you know, kill them, but... It did upset me, and for Maxine to stay by his side, that scared me a little bit because I knew she's always wanted children. I thought, I'm glad they haven't got any children themselves. So what would have happened if they did have children? Then came the news that the whole world had been dreading. Burnt human remains had been found in a ditch near an airbase in Suffolk. The following day, the police updated the press. It is with great sadness that I have to tell you the following news. It may be some days yet before we are able to positively identify the two bodies found at Common Drove near Lake and Heath in Suffolk yesterday lunchtime. However, we are certain, as we possibly can be tonight, that they are those of Holly and Jessica. A team of experts, including me, uh, went to the ditch um, and we found that it was the bodies of two little girls. And it was then that we began to carefully excavate the area looking for any clues who might have put them there and what had actually happened to them. Within the ditch, whilst we were searching, uh, we found various items which led us to believe, even before we'd done any DNA testing, that these were the bodies of Holly and Jessica. In particular, we found part of the pocket of the tracksuit bottoms that one of them was wearing, uh, 
part of the little plastic logo off the side of the tracksuit bottoms and also a, a piece of jewellery uh, which belonged to one of the two girls. This isolated spot is about 10 miles from where the two girls disappeared and for the moment the army of press from around the world covering the police inquiry are being kept well away. And it was all the worst we'd feared. But we knew that a lot of people had been following this story on air. Like everybody else, you know, your heart sink when you realise the reality of it. But it's much later when you finally come off air that you kind of go, that's just awful. I mean, what a terrible, terrible waste and what a terrible tragedy for this family, for those little girls, for, the, for a village that was really, really torn apart. It was now officially a murder investigation. Forensic experts gathered as much evidence as they could, but the remains were badly damaged. The investigators thought, if the bodies couldn't provide any clues, perhaps the deposition site may. But finding any small traces of evidence at the vast airbase was like looking for a needle in a haystack. To help hone in on exactly where the killer may have entered the ditch with the bodies, the police called on Professor Patricia Wiltshire, a botanical ecologist. It's a strange place. There are a series of drove roads in this part. It's near Lake and Heath Air Base. You're on the Breckland Sands there. That's the soil. When it gets wet, it gets very, very muddy and horrible. So what the farmers do, they get crushed up shells and they put them along a track. So as we drove along the track, it was all crunchy with shells. And then it stopped. And beyond that was the Breckland sand. What is very interesting is that the girls were found in a ditch just where the shells stopped. The police were flummoxed, really. So they said, where did he enter the ditch? It was obvious to me because the, a lot of the nettles had... Um, gone through corrective growth. They'd been flattened, but they'd grown up um, and, and corrected themselves. And uh, so I said to the police, well, here it is. And when they looked at that pathway, they found Jessica's hair on a twig. So they knew that's where he had entered the, uh, entered the ditch. It's quite important because then they can do their fingertip searching in appropriate places. Now, investigators needed to prove that Huntley was the person who had deposited the girls' bodies in the ditch. Again, the surrounding environment at the deposition site held the key. When I looked at the burnt clothing, it had masses of evidence that matched the vegetation in the ditch. And it showed that the girls were clothed when he put them in the ditch. So he must have taken the clothes off while they were in the ditch. Further searches at Huntley's home revealed that his house and car had recently been meticulously cleaned. Officers who interviewed Huntley the day after the girls went missing also reported a strong smell of a lemony cleaning product coming from the house. Not only did we examine the carpets, upholstery, and items within the house, uh, but we were also given uh, the contents of vacuum cleaners that Mr. Huntley had access to. By the use of these vacuum cleaners, it's likely that some of these fibres would have been distributed throughout the house. 
So not only had they been removed, but also distributed as well. And so there wasn't just one particular location in which we found uh, the fibres from the girls' clothing. They were found downstairs, upstairs, and in the bathroom as well. We had quite a lot of exhibits from Huntley's belongings, but his car, he'd carefully changed the tyres, he'd washed it. What he forgot was that the chassis had picked up soil. The chunks of soil had the same profile as where he'd put the girls. What investigators really needed was DNA proof that the girls had been in Huntley's house. But there was none to be found. It was unusual not to find any DNA evidence whatsoever if the girls had been within Mr Huntley's house. I now understand that it may be that Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr cleaned the house thoroughly using solutions of bleach. And that type of cleaning may account for the fact that no DNA was ever found within the property. Prosecutors still felt they had enough evidence to convince the jury that Ian Huntley had committed the atrocious crime, that he had abducted and murdered Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. On April 16, 2003, Huntley pleaded not guilty at London's historic Old Bailey Criminal Court. This meant the families would have to suffer through a trial. Huntley was officially charged with the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. Carr was charged with perverting the course of justice and assisting an offender. Kareem Khalil was the lead prosecutor on the case. The initial defense position, up until about a month before the trial, was that he had nothing whatsoever to do with the death of these two girls. Um, About a month before the hearing, his position changed and we were informed by his counsel uh, that, in fact, he would accept that the two girls had gone to college close, uh, that they had died whilst in that property, and that he had taken them to the area which became known as the deposition site, where the bodies were eventually found. What we were not informed about was what Huntley would say about the actual death of the two girls and how that had come about. On November 25th, while in court, Huntley gave an extraordinary explanation of how Holly and Jessica had died. According to Huntley, he was outside grooming his dog, preparing her for a bath. Then the two girls walked by. He claimed that one of them was suffering from a nosebleed, so he took them both inside to take care of it. As he was helping one girl in the bathroom, she slipped and hit her head on the bathtub and drowned in the water. The other girl witnessed this and started screaming. In an effort to settle her down, Huntley held his hand over the child's mouth, accidentally suffocating her. According to Huntley's account, both deaths were unintentional. The suggestion by Ian Huntley that he didn't mean to kill those girls um, I regard as preposterous. Two fit and healthy ten-year-olds. It just seems inconceivable that their death could have been caused by anyone other than a person intent on causing their death. The prosecution argued that minutes before seeing the girls, Huntley had a furious telephone argument with Carr as he suspected her of cheating on him. He then saw the girls, lured them to his house, and killed them in a jealous rage. 
We can only speculate about why Huntley killed the two. It's too horrifying to contemplate what might or might not have happened. And I feel that so strongly because of Holly and Jessica's parents. It cannot be anything but torture to imagine what might have happened to your daughter at the hands of Huntley. Sky News presenter Jeremy Thompson, who had interviewed Huntley and Carr on camera before they were arrested, testified during the trial. I get a call from the police saying, yes, please, we would like you to be a witness in the murder trial of Ian Huntley. And so I've been in the Old Bailey plenty of times sitting in the press benches, but for the very first time I was in the witness box. It's intimidating being in the witness box, particularly at the Old Bailey, because it's got a, a venerable and weighty atmosphere. But then I look down, there's Huntley looking up at me as well with a fairly blank face, a fairly deadpan face, but who knows what he was thinking. He was probably thinking, I wish I hadn't done that interview with you. I might have given myself away. Who knows? Dr. Yardley thinks Huntley liked the publicity. I think for Ian Huntley, that interview on live television news was the high point of his life. He was absolutely loving every minute of this. He's completely 100% in control. Nobody knows what's going on. He's the only one who knows exactly what happened, and that makes him feel incredibly powerful. On December 3rd, 2003, Maxine Carr took the stand. She admitted that she had lied about being with Huntley on the day of the murder and was, in fact, in Grimsby. She argued that had she known of Huntley's murderous actions, she would never have lied to protect him. I think the media saw Maxine Carr as, as a bit of a target because she was employed as a, a teaching assistant. She was supposed to be somebody who cared for and nurtured and, and looked after children. You've got to remember, Ian Huntley was the one who carried out these murders. He was the one who made these decisions. And, and Maxine Carr, you know, looking back on it now, it's clear that she was another one of his victims. Huntley's defense was falling apart. Investigators had proved that he tried to cover up his actions. And there was extensive forensic evidence linking him to the girls. We had a large number of transfers of fibers. We had fibers transferred from Mr. Huntley's clothing and his home to the tracksuit bottoms. We had hairs from Mr. Huntley transferred to the items of clothing of, of the girls. The jury didn't buy Huntley's explanation of the accidental killings. After just five days of deliberation, they reached a verdict. Huntley was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term set at a later date. However, a new criminal justice law meant the life sentence would have to be reconsidered. It was decided there wasn't enough evidence. Instead, Mr. Justice Moses gave him a 40-year minimum sentence. He would be eligible for parole in 2042. I think Ian Huntley would like to think that he was a master manipulator, but I don't think he had the, the correct level of social skills to be able to get away with, with a crime like this. Um, I think he became a, a victim of his own narcissism in the end. He literally just couldn't help himself in putting himself in front of the television cameras. So, so he was never going to get away with this, and I think he, he very much enjoyed his 15 minutes of fame. Maxine Carr was found guilty of perverting the course of justice, 
the English equivalent of obstruction of justice, but not guilty of assisting an offender. The court accepted that Carr had only lied to the police to protect Huntley because she believed his claims of innocence. She was sentenced to three and a half years and immediately sent to Holloway Prison. In May 2004, Carr was released and given a new identity. Marissa Gibb believes Maxine was only doing what she had to in order to protect herself. Well, I think she's a victim as well, because I think if she said anything, he would have probably killed her as well, and that's probably why she kept kept quiet, because she was scared of her own life. Her solicitor spoke to me and said, would you like to speak to Maxine? I said, yeah, because she's a friend, and I was there through thick and thin with the E. Nuntley, and that I did speak to her a couple of times on the phone, and we wrote. I wrote to her when she was in prison, and that, and then it just all faded away. It's been over a decade since the murders in Soham, and one question still remains unanswered. Why did Ian Huntley carry out these senseless killings? There's only one person who knows what happened, and because he chose to give the account he did, and has given no other, um, we will never be certain as to what precisely did occur. One only hopes that one day Huntley's conscience will allow him to tell us what really happened. He kept himself together pretty well through nearly two weeks of investigation, of police interviews, of media interviews like ours. So he didn't fall apart. He didn't act crazy. He certainly seemed to know what he was doing in covering up a crime that at the time only he knew about it. And I would question those aren't the actions of a madman, just someone who's very cold and calculating. In direct response to the Soham murders, the police launched a national database in 2011 that transformed the way information is shared between forces across the UK. And a new child protection program was set up to help prevent such a tragedy from ever taking place again. Well, I think the most positive thing to come out of the case is simply that the government then tightened laws on employment with children. Know, to work in schools or work in any areas uh, where children are involved, hopefully they've closed up the loopholes. So an Ian Huntley, with his past record, which hadn't come to light, now that wouldn't happen again. Huntley's house, five college close, where Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman spent their last moments, was demolished in 2004 but the memories of the Soham murders cannot be erased. It still upsets me because I'm a mother, I've got grandma and everything, and it's just the fact it could have been my family. Even though it's not your children, it's still mother instinct, it, it's children. Cases like this are quite rare, and the thing that always sticks out is that children are involved. And this case, I think, perhaps, gain more notoriety simply because two innocent little girls, two pretty little girls who'd gone out from a family barbecue to buy some sweets and never came back. Anybody who had kids would have thought, oh, there but for the grace of God go our family. When it can happen in Soham, it means it can happen anywhere, everywhere.
What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Mavridekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi and Daniel Birch. Recorded by Adam Garner at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beal and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thanks. on next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. Five days and nights into their excavation and forensic teams have now unearthed three sets of human remains, all buried in separate places, five feet under the garden patio of this Gloucester home. 25 Cromwell Street in Gloucester has become one of the most infamous addresses in Britain. For 20 years... Fred and Rosemary West quenched their appetite for sex and murder inside their house of unimaginable horror. When police began investigating the disappearance of their daughter, it led them right to the West's front door. Children are their things to play with. They are disposable. They're things there to be used and abused. I've never for one moment doubted that Frederick West was a truly evil man. But he found in Rose the perfect sorcerer's apprentice.